0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David DJ
1: Roy. I became the guy that everyone called for drugs. Uh, (laughs) 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 Wait me, let me finish the story.
0: (laughs) That and more, but before that, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio, the support of our fans could not be more meaningful to us, could not be more crucial to us, and more appreciated by us. By becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk, you'll have access to over 134 bonus stories, over 50 check-ins, I- I'm about to record a new one myself of just me checking in, and we have lots of interviews with staff and storytellers. We have the free online story studio video classes and videos of our past live streams there's so much more over at patreon.com risk so become a member and help us keep this show running and if you'd like to make a one-time donation that's at paypal.me slash risk show now here's the show
2: whoa whoa
1: Hello kids, this is Risk, the
0: show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Burt Kampfert behind me now, and I am so excited, I am so filled with gratitude, because on this episode we're going to feature, the final story is going to be from... Last Thursday's show, which was the first show ever that we were doing back live on stage again in New York City at Caveat, it was just a joyous night to be able to hug people again, to be able to hang out with people after the show, to be able to look out at the audience and see people's reactions, you know, right there in front of you. It was just a magical, beautiful night. I was so grateful to all the fans. It was amazing that so many people were watching on the live stream, right? People from Wales and Edmonton and various states across the U.S. I mean, it was amazing. And and we were interacting with the fans on the live stream as well. So I just just cannot (laughs) express how... How happy I am to be back on stage. Hopefully we will be touring again soon. Um, You know, coming to a city near you or a city you live in soon. So let's all keep our fingers crossed because it's a great feeling. It's just a great feeling. And I, I think you'll appreciate hearing the sound of the live audience in that last recording on today's episode. But we are still looking through our archives for stories from live shows past that we've yet to run. We're going to hear one soon from David D.J. Roy in Vancouver. Stand-up comedian there. He runs a show called That Filthy Show. But before that, we're going to share a story that was shared at one of our recent live stream shows. This one comes from Ryan Estrada, who was in Korea, South Korea, where he is based. Uh, the night he did the show, so it was—I guess it was morning there when he was <laughs> appearing on the show. But he told a great story, and it sounds great with the music that our editor John Lasala added to it. Now Ryan has a graphic novel called Band Book Club, and it was just nominated for an Eisner Award. So look that up. You can find Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Estrada, and here he is now with a story we call Self-Offload.
3: Thank you very much. So I got a romantic comedy for you guys today. The meet-cute was at a city mortgage call center in Mumbai. I was the awkward 26-year-old dorky American that they flew out to India to train their employees how to talk to Americans. But they were too busy talking to Americans to attend any trainings. So I basically just sat alone in a cubicle staring at a wall for days, months at a time. But she always took the time to talk to me. She'd put her customer on hold to flag me over and gossip about how weird they were. Of course it was my job to tell her to get back on the call and lower her average handling time but I couldn't say no to her. I, I really liked hanging out with her outside of work too. Of course she came from a very traditional religious family that wanted her to have an arranged marriage so dating and kissing were completely off the table. Luckily I had also never dated or kissed anyone but only because I was a dork who was terrified of girls. But we, you know, we couldn't have romantic outings, so we had adventurous ones instead. Like, say, we'd see on the news that there was a wild monkey on the loose terrorizing the citizens. So after work, we'd go out, find that monkey, and pet it. (laughs) She took me to the world's largest outdoor laundry, and we went past the tourist go and joined in on the line and helped wash clothes. We went to ancient temples. We went to a jungle that grew up inside a crater where a meteorite hit thousands of years ago. We had fun. And sometimes, when nobody was looking, we even held hands. (laughs) We had something, but we didn't know what it was. She swore me to secrecy, told me never to tell anyone, even if I knew what there was to tell. Because, I mean, sometimes we were inseparable, but sometimes she was terrified of anyone seeing us together. She told me to go away. Sometimes she was really mean and I didn't know why. Years passed, and I I still didn't know if she liked me. And I was afraid to ask. Everyone I knew in the country worked at the same call center where I was sworn to secrecy, so I I didn't need a sassy best friend to, to run my feelings by. But I'd seen the rom-coms. I knew this was how it worked. Will They Won't They was the only way I knew. I'd seen couples that didn't know how they felt. I'd seen couples that hated each other to the point where one of them was about to get on an airplane and fly away never to see the other again. But in those stories, there was always one moment, one grand romantic gesture that fixed everything. You know, the part of the movie where that guy on the airplane all of a sudden just stands up and says, I'm getting off the plane because I'm in love and everybody claps and he runs to her and, and boom, movie love. So I just had to wait for that moment. And I waited two years, and it didn't happen yet. My contract in India was over, I had already booked a trip to move to Mexico, and I finally got the guts to just say, "Ah, I'm gonna miss you. And she said, you know, I have this fantasy that one day you and I could be together, somewhere far away where nobody knew us, nobody would judge us. And I said, well, we could come with me and she said yes (laughs) i was so excited now her visa was going to take a while and she didn't want people to notice us leaving together so we agreed i would go first get everything set up and then once her visa arrived she would follow me i had saved about 10 grand for this move so i used a quarter of it to get like this really amazing house in mexico that was literally a world heritage site set up it was great and then i waited for months and months It was hard at first to keep in touch. The time zones weren't an issue because since she worked with American customers, she worked nights. But she spent all the time inside a call center where every computer had the entire financial history of anyone that had ever used Citibank. So there were no devices or outside internet allowed. So I kind of hacked Citibank. (laughs) I'm not a hacker. It's just very easy because their security is not good. Uh, (laughs) If anybody in the audience uses that... It's the warning. But, you know, hypothetically, I could have used the chat application that I made to pull off the largest financial heist in human history, but instead we just use it to flirt. And in one of those flirts, you know, I I went back to the the old classics and I said, I miss you. And she said, I have this fantasy, but one day I'm going to be at work, finish my call, turn around, and there you'll be. And I said, oh yeah, that would be pretty cool. Too bad I can't do that. It would be just like in the movies. And I immediately knew I had to do that. It'd be just like in the movies! (laughs) Of course, it was going to take another quarter of my life savings to get a same-day ticket to fly to Chicago to get the visa, then fly to uh, India and all this, but it was going to be so worth it. So exactly 72 hours later, she finished her call, she turned around, and there I was. Yay! And she says, "Oh, you're here. <laughs> Why?" And I'm like, "Cause, he, cause he told me to." What? And she's like, "I don't, I don't remember saying that." <gasps> and then we looked around and we realized the entire call center has gone silent. Oh Every call has been placed on hold, and everyone's staring at us. And they're like, "Hey, Ryan, are you back? What, what's going on?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, I forgot. It's supposed to be a secret." And so uh, she's like, just go. So after her shift ended at 7 a.m., she met me in my hotel lobby to talk and the uh, owner of the hotel saw her come in and he's like, no, no, no girls in room, no girls in room. And I turned to her and a little awkward, but for the very first time I said, this is my girlfriend. And the owner of the hotel said, this is not the kind of hotel where you can bring your whores. Her face went from mildly blushing red to deep red, mortified. My face turned red in rage, and I started we getting a screaming match, like how dare you say that to her, back and forth, Ryan, 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 let's just go. I get my things, we leave. She uh, finds another hotel for me and says, look, just, it's late, I gotta sleep. You just wait here. So I did, I waited, for a week. I had just arrived. I didn't have a cell phone. The hotel that she had found for me didn't have Wi-Fi. And uh, I called her later in the day, but I'd just get like, oh, what are you doing? I'm sleeping. Or I'm with my family right now. I can't talk. And eventually just no answer. Mm. But I'd messed up our first night so bad, I didn't want to not be there for her when she was ready to talk. And I didn't know when that was going to be, but I knew it was going to be any second. So I just waited in a windowless, musty hotel room, staring at that phone. I was afraid to even go eat, because what if that was the moment she called? So I just ran out, got some takeout across the street real quick, and came back and just made it last the day. And then that day became another day, and then that day became another day, and it started to physically hurt. Because I'd gone from talking to her all day and night from another hemisphere To locked in a room a few minutes away, not talking to anyone at all. I couldn't tell my family where I was. Like, I couldn't even leave, you know, change hotels because I didn't have any way to tell her uh, where I was. I couldn't ask anyone for advice. So I just waited as I got more and more uh, stressed out and I, I started losing weight, I started losing sanity, I started losing color. And finally, after seven days, I'm like, it's been a week. I need an answer. So I called her phone and ring ring ring, disconnect, call again, ring ring ring, disconnect, and I just did this for hours. And then I realized I shouldn't be here. She didn't really want me here. Every moment I'm here is making it worse. I don't want to be here. I can't afford to be here because now I'm paying for a hotel that is surprisingly expensive for being a musty windowless room and also paying for the house in Mexico at the same time. And while I'm here, I can't work to earn more money. I'm running out fast. And I I gotta go. And so for the first time I left and I went to an internet cafe and I booked a ticket home back to Mexico. It took another quarter of my savings because I had to leave that day because I could not wait one more second for a call that would never come. I went back to the hotel to pack my things And the call came! (laughs) The phone was ringing when I opened the door, and she invited me to lunch. And lunch was great. It was everything I'd hoped for. She was smiling, she was laughing, she even put her hand on my shoulder. Big thing. I was enjoying it, but then when it was my turn to talk, I just said, I'm leaving in an hour. And it didn't go over well. There was a lot of back and forth, but it came down to if I got on the plane, she was not gonna follow me to Mexico and I might never see her again. And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't have to be like that. Let's go back to the original plan. I did a thing, I surprised you, and now I'll just wait there. And then, you know, as soon as your visa arrives, you can come. When is your visa supposed to come? It's supposed to come soon, right? What did they say? You did apply for your visa, right? She hadn't applied for the visa. So I got on the plane. As bad as the week in the hotel room was... The 15 minutes between boarding and takeoff were even worse.
2: Because
3: now I was surrounded by people, but I was even more alone. My guts hurt. I couldn't breathe. I'm thinking, should I be here? Like, I have to be here. I can't leave. This flight is non-refundable. If I get off, I don't know if I have enough money left in my account for another ticket, let alone living, let alone her ticket, let alone any of this. I, like, I don't know what's going on, but I know this is not how the movie would end. And I don't know what came over me. I saw the the flight attendant closing the door and I just stood up and I said I'm getting off the plane and everybody around me looked at me like I just said I was hijacking the plane and then way up front the flight attendant's like what and I'm like I'm I'm getting off the plane and everybody's still looking at me and I'm like oh yeah I forgot a part because I'm in love and around me all the other people are like Like, they've seen the same movies as me, so this is the part where they're supposed to do this, but I might be a terrorist, so they gotta hedge their bets. And I'm already up, I'm running to the front of the plane, security is already there at the door. And they're like, sir, this plane has to leave right now. And I'm like, it's gonna have to leave without me. And they're like, well, it can't, because if some asshole screams and runs off the plane, we gotta deboard everybody, bring in the bomb-sniffing dog, to take the plane apart to figure out why. And I'm like, well, I'm in love, though. So I got detained... Oh. There is a reason that this is always the last scene of the movie. Because they do not want to show you what happens next. Cause it is not fun. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in a uh, immigration holding cell oh for a while. Before this dude with just flop sweat comes in. He's like, what are you planning? And I'm like, I'm planning to run off the plane and go to the white class and I go to the girl, like in the movies. And he's like, what? What movies? <laughs> and I couldn't think of a specific example. So I'm like, did you ever see the last episode of Friends? He did not see the last episode of Friends. Probably his his reference was more like Final Destination, which was not the vibe I was going for. <laughs> he also tells me, you have a single entry visa and you already used it. You can't leave the airport. So I'm now sitting in the cell like Tom Hanks in the terminal. I'm just watching out this little window as like hurried officials go back and forth and I see their faces turning red as they're arguing and I look and I see the departure board turn red as everything goes to delayed, 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 cancelled, 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 because this airport has basically shut down over this potential terrorist threat. And then, uh, after a couple of hours of this, flop-sweated officer comes in again and he's like, (sighs) Check the plane. Everything's fine. Do you swear this is about a girl? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, do you love her? What? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> uh, grabs my passport, gets his little pen, clicks, and he goes, there is no protocol for this. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. I'm just gonna cancel this myself. And uh, when it is time to leave India, you just ask for me, I'll wave you through. We're pretending like this never happened. Mm. And I'm like, thank you. And I'm looking, I'm trying to figure out what he's written. And it. at first I thought it said, sexy officer. And I'm like, is that a signature? But it actually says self-offload, which is, if you've ever wondered what it's called when the guy gets off the plane, self-offload. <laughs> I'm looking at this, and the guy goes, well? I'm like, well, what? He goes, go to her. <laughs> so I, I ran out of the cell, I ran out of the airport, I got in a taxi, I flew across the city, I ran across the call center, she finished her call, she turned around and goes, oh, you're still here. So I got dumped pretty soon after that. (laughs) Uh, uh, Did take the rest of my life savings, plus a little bit I had to borrow to fly out again. Left penniless. My grand romantic gesture did not work out as well as I had planned. But you know what? I'm glad. Because I'm married now to someone else. And we use a little different technique called open and honest communication with your partner. (laughs) Like We'll discuss our dreams, but also our realities and what the difference between the two is, and we'll make decisions together based on the combination of the two. And it's worked out pretty good so far. So maybe I didn't get my uh, movie romance, but I do have the real thing now, and uh, that's even better. Thank you.
2: (laughs)
1: In the great words of one of my favorite icons uh, Lenny Bruce yes some man knows his old comedy life is another four letter word <laughs> let that sit for a bit yeah cause you gotta understand is once upon a time in one of my past lives my career would be best described as narcotics middle management yes boys and girls I used to be a drug dealer and it's not like when I was a kid. I'm like, what do I want to do when I grow up? I know, sell cocaine. Yay! No, <laughs> I got into it very innocent enough because you see, back in the '90s, I was throwing parties, throwing raves. I was the guy that running everything, and all my DJs and friends were getting ripped off a lot, and like getting shitty stuff, and getting sick. So uh, I just, you know, I told them, listen, I know a guy. We all know a guy, right? So I called him, and I made that hookup. And quickly from that one little hookup, I became the guy that everyone called for drugs. Uh. <laughs> Wait me. let me finish the story. <laughs> See, the money was good, right? Because rent got paid, and that was very rare for me. But now, you know, I have a whole lot of money, but the life is shit. You're not surrounded by friends, you're surrounded by customers. And all they do is they want something from you, right? They don't care about you, they just care about what they can get from you. It was safe for me to assume that everybody was lying to me. And I had no real friends. And ironically enough, I was a Coke dealer that didn't do Coke. I didn't have time, because I was too busy running around. They kept calling it the DJ service. (laughs) Very ironic, right? So I'm going around, and I was going through some dark times. I hated myself, I hated what I was doing, I hated the life, but I needed the money. How many times have we said that? We doing it for the money. But I really hated myself and I started trying to kill myself with alcohol like I mean I'm drinking like there is no tomorrow I fucking hated my life but in the darkest darkest moment I discovered something I truly truly fell in love with and that was stand up comedy it was awesome I get to express myself I get to make people laugh I go home at night happy right it was awesome But as as I discovered comedy, I also, my sister, was pregnant with my first niece or nephew. So it was good times, right? And you got to understand, me and my sister, we look completely opposite, and we're completely opposite people, but we can't do anything together because we're too much alike. We're basically trying to kill each other. Since the day she was born, it's been a battle to the death. But I still love her. I hate her most of the time. Don't like her that much, but I love her. Like, if, if she gets messed with, I'm right there. Yeah. <sighs> oh, you say, oh, you weren't in the emergency room when we went most of the time. Again, battle to the death. <sighs> but I loved her. And sadly, at the same time, my grandmother was fighting cancer. And it took a turn for the worse. And you got to understand is my grandmother was a big part of me growing up. She helped raise me. I remember coming home from school, because she's one of those baking grandmas, you know? (laughs) And I'd come home from school, and as soon as I can grab the stepladder, because you walk into her house, and you can smell cookies. So you know she baked cookies that day. So you'd run around, you'd grab that stepladder, reach on up, tippy toe on the ladder, reach into the cookie jar. That was one of my favorite memories of my grandmother. But my grandmother also had problems with me growing up, or accepting that I was growing up. Because you see, when I was 15, I was a little punk rock skater kid, right? And all I wanted for my birthday was a Suicidal Tendencies album, right? And I dropped hints, I, I basically literally just told her what I wanted. And so my birthday came around and there was an album wrapped up. And I'm stoked. I'm thinking, it's sure shot
4: to Yeah.
1: I rip it open to find she bought me a fucking Smurfs album. <laughs> So guess what Grandma got for her birthday? <laughs> That's right. she got the suicidal, Tennessee's album. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking she's just going to give it to me, right? No. She kept it. And for three weeks after that was humming possessed to skate. also my grandmother was a big disciplinary like i said she was a baking grandma so she had quick access to wooden spoons (laughs) right and i got beaten a lot with them and ironically she's one of those old quebec grannies so she'd beat me and then beat me again in french (laughs) it's like how canadian a bilingual ass whooping But I remember when I was like 17, 18, I don't know what I did, but I pissed her off and she grabbed a wooden spoon and she beat me so hard she broke the wooden spoon. And that's the time Granny got real gangster. <laughs> I still have the scars. Uh, but I, I loved her. And uh, I remember when she was in the hospital going there a lot to uh, spend time with her, right? And we'd reminisce and we'd <laughs> talk a lot. <laughs> and uh, we'd play board games, which by the way, Granny can't play chess. So you know how hard it is to, you know, try to lose a chess game to someone who can't play chess? <laughs> I tried really hard to suck. Cause you know, it's Granny, right? And I don't wanna, you know, she's in cancer. I'm, I'm, Here's the thing, though, is I spent a lot of time in the hospital, even though I really fucking hate hospitals. Going into a hospital, you just, that smell, you know, the sanitation, that just cleansiness and cleaning fluid smell that just drives you nuts and just so gloomy, it's so institutionalized, the paint's just gray, everybody looks gray, everyone's so depressed. Spending time there was just heartbreaking because it's like no one goes to a hospital to get better. And that was a fact I had to face. And every time I'd go into grandma's room, I just, my heart would break. Because just looking at her, it's like, this is not the woman that broke a wooden spoon on me. This is a shadow of her. But I would do it just because I fucking loved her. And, uh... So we talk. I remember one time, Grand. Uh, we had a really heart to heart. I mean, she was one of those women that a few words, but what she said meant something. So when she sat me down one day and she's like, "Deech, we're not stupid. You're a young man with no real job, but yet you always have money. That life's not good for you, right?" do comedy, it's, you love it, it puts a smile on your face. Promise me you'll do something with your life. Do comedy. And I half-heartedly, like, promised her I would do a better life and, and change my life. And I did, but the next part she said broke me. Because she's like, that life will lead to nothing more than prison or worse. And just the thought of prison was scary. Because think about it. I'm going to waste away in a cell that's 10 by 8 and not exist. Like, life will go on without me. You know, like, sure, the family will come visit in the beginning, but they have lives. The visits will get spread out, and then eventually they won't show up. And the next time they'll only know about me is when I'm dead. And they'll be just, my niece or nephews will be like, oh, that guy we used to visit in prison, he died? And that's the only impact I'll have in their lives. And that broke me. But rent still has to get paid, so back to hustling I go. And a little while later, I got a call in the middle of a drug deal. And they're like, get to the hospital now. And I'm freaking out. So I offer this guy going, listen, I'll give you an eight ball for free if you can get me the fuck across town now. And he did. (laughs) 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 We're running red lights, we're blowing past stop signs, right? Because this guy wants free coke and I need to get to a hospital. (laughs) But I'm losing it because I don't know. No one told me anything. Just get to the hospital. So I don't know if, if my nephew or niece and nephew is coming into this world or if my grandmother left this world. So I'm just freaking out. I'm, I'm torn. Is it a happy day or a sad day? And as I got to the hospital and bet him goodbye, gave him his eight ball, he's gone. <laughs> I, uh, I finally found my family. And that night was a good night dominic was born my first nephew he was <laughs> pretty and uh, <laughs> uh it's going to go down from here uh, <laughs> He was born, so the next day when they all cleaned him up and he was well enough, and ironically, my sister went to the same hospital my grandmother was in, so the next day, the nurse brought Dominic up to see my grandmother. So there I am in a room with four generations of my family in one room, and my grandmother's holding Dominic for the first time ever, and the look on her face, that's the first time in three months I've seen life in her eyes. And that's when I got it. That's when it really kicked in. Family is the most important thing in this world. Right? And she gave me a look that just went through me. That do I really want to see him on prison visits? Do I want to really, you know, like got to change my life. So uh, eventually they took Dominic away and we all went our separate ways and Shortly after that night, um, my grandmother passed away in the sleep, but she had a smile on her face. And now I understand why she held on for so long when she could have died months ago and be happy, but she held on for that moment that I'll never ever forget. So I went to her funeral, I spoke, and what I said meant so much to me was, you might be walking alone and feeling very, very alone down the street. And one day, a warm breeze will pass through you. Your heart will fill with love. Your body will be warm. A smile will come to your face and the words grandma will come to your lips. And at that moment, you'll know you're never, ever gonna be alone again. <sighs> but sadly, after the funeral, I went home and had an everything must go sale. You're gonna be surprised how fast free Coke goes. Or wait, discounted Coke. It was like buy two eight balls, get the third for free! There was a lineup out front of my apartment. <laughs> but 24 hours after that, I started and made the promise and kept the promise and started living a legit life and being a professional stand up comic. That was also the first day I was introduced to poverty. (laughs) So, when I do tough shows, when I get shit on, when I get a heckler, when the days I was homeless but still kept the promise, I just thought of her. Because I have a higher purpose to answer to than fucking Yuck Yucks or any other fucking comedy club. I have a higher fucking purpose. So when I'm doing Prince George, Moose Jaw, and Red Deer, and I get the make me laugh funny boy, I got a heckler bigger and badder than you. And I'll leave you on this note is um, an update. Dominic just got his learner's permit to drive. And my comedy career has taken me to very, very strange places. I got a couple more stories. I mean, hell, my comedy career has actually got me into porn. <laughs> but yet, that's a story for another time. You guys have been a wonderful audience. Thank you.
0: is Risk. This is Junip behind me now and we just heard from David DJ Roy. You can find him on Twitter at David DJ Roy and there in Vancouver his show is called That Filthy Show and before that we heard a little bit of the song called Rom-Com Gone Wrong by Matt Maltese. Folks, the storystudio.org is where you will find so many storytelling training opportunities. Like, for example, in July, on July 10th and 11th, Gigi Lee, who you have heard on the show before, and who's written for The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Gigi is teaching a two-day online group storytelling workshop. And there's many more opportunities like that. Not just for storytelling for performance, like on Risk or The Moth, but storytelling for business. And there's our corporate workshops, customized for particular businesses. All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues... There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through... Like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes from our very first live show that we have done back on stage in New York City. First one that we've done back since, oh, March of uh, 2020. This is very fresh. This is from just a few days ago, this past Thursday. And this is Christine Gentry, one of our favorite storytellers. You know, Christine has shared a couple of stories on the podcast over the years about donating a kidney. The first story that Christine shared about that was called Making the Chain, because when you donate a kidney, it creates a chain of people who might get in line and be able to get a kidney because of it. There was a fella who came to the show on Thursday who said he heard Christine's story on Risk, and he was so inspired that he donated a kidney. So, once again, out of that came actual life-saving. Just overwhelmingly wonderful. And like I say, Christine herself is always wonderful when she does the show. And so it was so nice to get back up on stage and have her back. You can find her at christinegentry.net. Now, I do have to warn you, there is domestic violence in this story. But as always, told with so much heart. Here's Christine now with a story we call Animal Afraid.
5: So when I first met the man I'm going to call Ethan, I was really excited. I had been looking for a long time for someone who could challenge me because my last serious relationship had been with someone who worshipped the ground that I walked on. And I thought that's what I wanted, but it actually turned me into a really terrible version of myself. So I knew that I needed somebody who could challenge me, who could call me out when I needed to be called out. And this guy did it on the first date. And I was totally smitten. And at the time, I was rabidly insecure about my body about how I looked I was totally uncomfortable in my own skin and I had put this into this emotional quarantine space inside of me and I had put it behind a thick locked door and that allowed me on the outside to be this really outgoing confident self-assured person and that's who most people met and that night that's who Ethan met but after a few months I was like, let's see, right? Let's let's see if I can let him into that space. And I did. I let him see all of me. I let him see who I really was. And he made me feel beautiful. And I was like, well, that's it. You know, you can stay. <laughs> if you accept that part of me that I think is so ugly, you can stay. And I gave him the key to that space behind that door. And, of course, at the time, there were red flags that I can see now. He was very possessive like one of our first fights was that I had had dinner with somebody who was an ex but had long ago become a friend and it was a huge deal a huge fight and I said okay like I won't see that person anymore (laughs) he was also really controlling particularly sexually he would pressure me to do things that I knew I didn't like that I knew I didn't want to do And he would say, well, if you know you don't like them, it's because you've done them with someone else. And if you've done them with someone else, then if you really love me, you'll do it with me too. And he would also hurt me during sex without my consent. And I remember one time I had this terrible bruise. Uh, It was like black, blue, purple on my breast. And I sent him a picture of it. And I half jokingly said, like, oh, I'm going to report you. And he said, no judge would ever believe that wasn't consensual. And he could also be really scary, even early on. Like, we were having a really bad fight once, of course, because we were always fighting. And we had a really bad fight once at a bar, and we were with all of his friends, and I was so embarrassed that we were fighting in front of his friends. I asked him, can we please go outside? And you know, in New York City, they have those grates, right, that the stores put down, those metal grates that they put down at night. And Ethan was a big man. He played football in undergrad. And he used his body to back me up against one of those greats. And he pinned me. And he was yelling the most vile things in my face, jabbing his finger in my face. And my face was just covered with his spit. And it was so bad that a stranger stopped and started videotaping us. And when he noticed it, I thought I was going to kill him. And I had to get between them, and and the guy just kept taping, and he said, what you're doing to this woman is unacceptable. It's not okay. And I looked at this stranger, and I was like, I know that you're trying to help me, but you're really not. Like, you're making it a lot worse. Like, I need you to please stop. And he did, he shook his head, and he walked away. And the next day, I frantically searched, like, all of social media, all of YouTube, like, abusive relationship New York, man-woman fighting outside of bar in New York. Like, I was just... So afraid that I would be outed as being in this terribly toxic relationship and I'm not the woman who does that. Like, that's not me. I don't do that. And after that night, I made him promise that he would go to couples therapy with me and he agreed. So we started going, but it wasn't fixing anything. I mean, like we would literally leave the therapist's office and fight in the elevator on the way down. Our fights just kept getting worse and worse. And one night we were at my apartment and he was in the bathroom, and his phone went off, and I looked at the notification on the screen, and it was from a female friend of his who I'd met, and it just said, are you single yet? And I couldn't pretend that I hadn't seen it. Like, like when he came in, I was crying. He asked me what was wrong. I told him, and he just snapped. He was like, did you look at my fucking phone? and i reached for the phone to show him that it was just the notification i'd seen it on the lock screen but i didn't have a chance to say anything like as soon as i picked up the phone he slapped it out of my hand and went skittering across the room he grabbed my elbow so hard he swung me around threw me on my own bed put his hands around my throat and put all of his weight into me and i just like i just flailed like i flailed like trying so hard to get out from under his hands and I landed a punch on his nose and he reeled back and I could see there was blood and he's shocked he ran to the bathroom and I took everything that he had left in my room and I threw it out into my living room I said get out get out and when he came out of the bathroom and saw his stuff had been thrown in the living room he started swiping every possession I had off of every surface on the apartment just breaking things, swiping things off. And he went for my computer. All my dissertation stuff was on that computer. And I got between him and the computer. I said, please, please stop. And he grabbed my ankle, and he pulled it out from underneath me, and I fell. My entire body weight fell on the left side, of my body I had bruises all down the left side. And he went back into the bathroom to clean himself up. And I grabbed my phone, and I called the cops, and I put it on speakerphone so he could hear what I was doing. And he came out of the bathroom and said, you're calling the cops? And he grabbed all of the things that I had thrown in the living room and he left. And after he left, I stood in front of the mirror and I looked at who I had let myself become. And the bruises were already spreading on my neck, like ink spilled on paper. And I put a turtleneck on before the cops got there on purpose. And when they arrived, I am so embarrassed to tell you that I told them everything was fine and I'm sorry. Please leave. And as far as anyone in my life knew, that was the night that I officially left Ethan. And I wanted so badly to break free from this man, from this relationship, but I had let him in that space. I had let him in that space. I had given him the key and he had swallowed it and I could not get him out. He would call, he would leave these sobbing voicemails, he would send flowers, he taught himself how to knit. He would send me beanies with like messages stitched inside of them. And I would show up, I would show up at his house late at night and in my shame I would leave early in the morning to get home before my roommate woke up because no one in my life knew that I kept seeing this man after what had happened no one knew including my best friend in the whole world who totally suspected and kept asking me and that's when I learned that keeping secrets has physical consequences because I got ulcers for the first time in my life I would wake up in the middle of the night with the searing pain in my ear from grinding my teeth so hard at night. And I had been doing this for months when one day I got up and joined the rest of New York City in the 7 a.m. rush hour because I had jury duty downtown. And I'm on the train and I'm totally just spaced out, standing up, holding the pole. And I'm looking at the head of this man who's sitting down in front of me And he's got this big duffel bag. It's between his legs. And we get to 42nd Street, Times Square. And people get off and people get on. And there's the announcement, like, stand clear of the closing doors, please. And then this man bursts out of his seat. And he jumps over his own bag. And he shoves me and a whole bunch of other people out of the way so that he could squeeze out of the doors, like, just as they shut and the train lurches forward. And I don't know if you've ever been animal afraid, but it's terrible. Like here we were under Times Square in a crowded train in New York City, hurtling toward Penn Station with this duffel bag that had so clearly been left on purpose. And this wave of panic starts with this small circle of us around the bag, and it spreads to the whole car. And people start freaking out and they're trying to get out of the doors on either side, but they're locked. And someone says, pull the emergency brake. And someone else says, don't do that, don't do that. You'll, you'll trap us underground with the bag. And I'm just paralyzed looking at this thing, this bag. It's right here in front of me. Like all those, if you see something, say something, announcements like this is happening. Like this is now, this is me. And this loud New York accent bursts over all of the noise. <laughs> And a guy says, move out of the way, this is dumb, this is nothing. He's pushing his way through the crowd. It's one of the passengers. And he goes, this, I'll show you, this is nothing. And everybody around the bag was like, don't you touch that bag. Don't you touch that bag. And he was like, shut up, get out of the way. He grabs the bag. He rips it open. He starts pulling out clothes. It's just clothes. He's throwing them up into the air so the whole car can see, it's just clothes. And the bag is empty, he holds it over his head. The guy just left his bag. Shut up. And as if it was like a single organism, the whole car was like, oh. <laughs> but I can't. I'm so freaked out. Like my heart is beating out of my chest. And when we finally get to 34th Street, I get off the train. I'm like, I would rather be late to jury duty than be on this train like one more minute. And I'm sitting on that platform and I'm waiting for the next train. And my knees are shaking so bad. Y'all, I'm not sure I can stand. (laughs) And I just keep, I just keep thinking about this Mary Oliver quote, you know, like, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? When I finally get above ground in Canal Street, my phone vibrates in my hand, and it's Ethan. And he says, I love you, I miss you, can I see you tonight? And for the first time, it is so easy not to respond. Thank you.
4: now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face now she snaps her wings open and floats away I don't know exactly what a prayer is I do know how to pay attention how to fall down into the grass how to kneel down in the grass how to be idle and blessed how to stroll through the fields which is what I have been doing all day tell me What else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?
0: is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Soccer Mommy behind me now, and we just heard from Mary Oliver reading her poem The Summer Day at 92Y. Oh my gosh, before that, we heard from Christine Gentry live on stage at Caveat. We will be back next month live on stage at caveat i don't think we yet have the date nailed down so stay tuned and check out everything christine is up to at christinegentry.net well folks we need your anecdotes those four minute thereabouts stories that people record on their own and send into to us if you can think of just like one incident you know one quick little thing that happened to you that was especially embarrassing, gave you a shock, or had you laughing like crazy, or a moment you found beautiful. I always feel like those anecdotes are more like the size of a story that you might share with friends at a bar, you know? Like, hey, you'll never believe what happened to me at the beach this past weekend. Or the weirdest thing happened to me on the way to work a couple weeks ago. Lots of great tips are at risk-show.com anecdotes. So get on over there and pitch us. Don't forget to follow us on our socials. That'll keep you up to date with what we're up to on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at risk show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison. There's also the risk podcast fans discussion group. On Facebook, a great place to talk to other fans about stories. As is our subreddit, at Risk Podcast. And folks, did you know you can hire me personally for storytelling training? Just look me up at kevinallison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
2: Hey, I've been falling apart. Yep, this is what we're gonna use. This is gonna be our drink of choice.
1: And the object of the challenge is to drink out of this giant straw. All right, so let's see if I can do it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> what the fuck Was dumb as hell.